Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Dolan Perkins Valdez about Take My Hand. Dolan is the New York Times bestselling author of Wench and Balm. She was a finalist for two NCAA Image Awards and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Fiction. She was awarded the first novelist award by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her family. I absolutely loved Take My Hand. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Dolan. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I am great. I am so excited to speak with you about Take My Hand. I just loved it. What a beautiful book. Thank you. Well, why don't we start out with you giving me a quick description of the book for those that won't have read it yet. Sure. The book is set in 1973, Montgomery, Alabama, and it features a young woman, Sybil Townsend, who has just graduated from the nursing school at Tuskegee. She gets her first job at a family planning clinic. She's very excited about it because she wants to help women in her community make good choices about their reproductive lives. 
But very, very quickly, she finds out that the clinic is not the clinic that she thought it was. She has two young patients, India and Erica Williams, who are 11 and 13 years old. She learns very, very early in the book that India, is, who is only 11 years old, has not even started her cycle yet, but has been put on birth control. And she is very shaken by this discovery. That's the first thing she discovers. And, you know, eventually the clinic, which is funded by the federal government, will sterilize those girls without their family's consent. I just was absolutely horrified by that. It was not something I was familiar with, nor the Tuskegee experiment on the black men with syphilis. Neither one of those were events that I was familiar with at all. And I was equally horrified by both of them. It's just terrible. It really is. And it is, in some ways, the culmination of medical experimentation that had also happened during slavery. There was a doctor, J. Marion Sims, who was one of the early sort of gynecologists. Many people even now call him the father of modern gynecology who was operating in Alabama, in this very area, on enslaved women without using pain medication. He developed this procedure called uh, a vaginal fistula repair on enslaved women. And he would perform these surgeries outside and people would observe the surgeries. And, uh, and they were very, very painful. And so there was a history of medical experimentation on Black bodies that predated this. And I think that the Tuskegee experiment and also the tens of thousands of Black women who were sterilized during this period are a legacy of that. It's just so hard to imagine that more people weren't speaking up. I mean, eventually someone did and, you know, was brought to court as a result. But I mean, the fact that it could happen to that many people and other people weren't speaking up is just amazing to me and not in a good way. Yes, that Tuskegee syphilis experiment went on for 40 years, and it was the findings were being published in the leading medical journals. It was sort of what you might call an open secret. They, even after men died, they autopsied their cadavers and continued to study them. So we have to understand that even though a lot of people even now don't know a lot about it, and even at the time, local Alabamians did not know this was going on. They were also shocked to discover it. But we have to remember that it was not necessarily a secret. Those family planning clinics even were all over the country. They were situated in African-American neighborhoods. And they, the doctors were sterilizing women under coercive circumstances. And often the women didn't know it was happening ahead of time, correct? Or most of the time didn't know. Oh, there were all kinds of situations. Quite often a woman would be in labor. And while you were in labor, the doctor would have you sign something. And, you know, you're in labor. You're not necessarily in your right mind. And you didn't know whether or not the procedure they were about to perform was reversible or not. Even now, when I talk about a tubal ligation, people will ask me, is that reversible? Right? Because I think in some circumstances, it can be. In, my, in the case of my book, the, the girl's tubes are cauterized, so it's irreversible. But that's a, a good question. If someone were to ask me that, is that reversible? So imagine you're in labor or if you were, you might be, you know, pregnant and you go see the doctor and the doctor says, if you don't allow me to sterilize you, you will lose your Medicaid benefits. You will lose uh, your welfare benefits. You will lose your food stamps. You need to do this. You've already got three children. 
So there were all kinds of ways. And then also people just trusted their, as, as you do now, as most of us do, they trusted their doctors, they trusted government officials, and they thought that they were trying to help them. I guess that's the part that's just absolutely horrific is that they were putting their lives in someone else's hands expecting that that would be okay for them and that they could trust the doctors or the government officials who, in fact, were either lying to them or pressuring them or not telling them the entire truth. That's right. And that's a really important part of the book that the Williams family in my book, Sybil's, uh, the family that she's working with, they trust her and they trust other women in the uniform that she wears. So it's really important to understand the level of dependence that these families had on benefits and on these government officials. And, you know, the threat of having your benefits taken away. I mean, at one point, the Williams family lives in public housing, which is subsidized by the government. The threat of losing everything was, was very real for these families. Well, especially for them, because the public housing was a big step up for them. So they did not want to go back to what they had done before. That's right. Well, where did the idea come from the story? I mean, I understand where it happened in history, but how did you learn about it and then decide to write about it? Well, I grew up hearing about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment because my dad graduated from Tuskegee in the late 1960s. So I knew about that. Later, I learned a little bit about the Ralph sisters. Every now and then I would watch a documentary and they would appear, footage of the actual sisters would appear. So I'd heard a little bit about forced sterilizations. I'd heard about the case for reparations against people in the state of North Carolina for sterilizing women there. But I had never really made some connections before between Ralph and between Tuskegee and also just this moment in history. I was reading the Montgomery Advertiser as I was digging a little bit about the Ralph sister case, and the head nurse, who was a white woman, was originally named in the lawsuit. And uh, in a statement to the newspaper, she said, well, it must have been okay to sterilize those girls because all eight of the nurses who worked at the clinic were black. And I said to myself, what? I, I had never read this before. I never found anything about those nurses. I don't know who they are to this day. And that is why I decided to imagine this character, Civil Townsend, so I could imagine what it must have been like to be a nurse at that clinic and to have something like this happen under your watch. And you must have had to do all sorts of research. I can't even imagine. I did. I went through a lot of newspapers. I read books. Um, you know, my favorite book that I read was called Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts. I read articles. I then traveled to Montgomery and I met with Joseph Levin, the lawyer, the young lawyer who argued the case, who was very, very helpful. He got the files out of storage. They had not been out of storage in 45 years. Wow. Yes, and and said that it remained one of the most significant cases he'd ever argued. He's retired now, so uh, he enjoyed sitting there and chatting with me. And then he asked me if I had called a woman by the name of Jessie Bly, and I said, no, who was that? And he said, oh, she was the girl's social worker. So I called her out of the blue and introduced myself and asked her if I could take her to dinner. And she said, sure. And so uh, I went to her house. I met her family. And, um, and she brought a, a church friend with her and I asked her where she wanted to go to dinner. And she said, let's go to Red Lobster. And I said, <laughs> okay. And I hadn't been to Red Lobster in years. We had a good dinner there. 
And I said, am I driving? She says, oh, yes, honey, you're driving. And so I took them out on a a nice dinner and we talked and she shared everything that she remembered. And I felt so fortunate because she was the one who in my book, they don't have a social worker. The social worker has stopped coming around. But she was the one who discovered the girls had been sterilized. When I saw that you had interviewed her, I thought, how cool. She must have had so much personal insight that you could not have garnered from the newspaper or anywhere else. Oh, yes, because she was close to the family. The girls would come to her house and spend the night with her kids. She had children, and they would come to her house and and be with her children. And when she discovered it, her husband was in the military. She was so outraged. She told me, she said, Dolan, I just saw bulls behind my eyes. Bulls. (laughs) That's what she told me. And, you know, um, she said she went to her husband's commanding officer and asked him, what should I do? I I can't believe this happened. And he named, uh, he mentioned a young civil rights attorney in town and she went to Joe Levin's office. He wasn't there. She sat out in the waiting room and waited all day for him to return. And when he came back, she told him what had happened and he took the case. I wondered how they had connected up originally. I always find it completely fascinating to see how the story gets from the individual to the attorney when there's going to be a big lawsuit like that. So just really takes one person. And I guess that's what's so much more appalling about the story is that there weren't more people like her. Yes. I mean, there are a lot of people like her throughout history, right? Ordinary, everyday people who do these extraordinary things and never take any credit for it, right? Absolutely. I just meant in this instance. But yes, definitely. I love those type of stories, these people that definitely do way more than you would be expected of them. And it's fabulous. But in this instance, I can't imagine that people weren't just screaming about it everywhere. I agree. It it was really a tragic moment, I have to say, Cindy, that I still think about all the time. It could have been my girls, right? I just... I think about it could have been any of our girls. And I think it's really important for us to learn this history because we still have vulnerable members of our population who could be subject to something like this. And so it's really important to me that people know this history and they know this story. Absolutely, because it is such an irreversible thing. And it could happen to your daughters or my daughters or whoever's daughters. And it's something that cannot be changed. And I guess that's the part. That as a woman, you just think, oh my gosh, it's truly horrific. It is to have that choice stripped away from you, particularly to have it stripped away from a young girl. But, you know, most recently, uh, as I mentioned in the, in the notes of the book, we have seen women in California state prisons who were sterilized without their consent. We've heard allegations from a whistleblower of women in immigrant detention facilities who had been sterilized, allegedly. So I think this is something that we have to continue to talk about. And I want to just make sure that people know a little bit about it. Now, what they do with that knowledge, I can't say, I can't control. But my hope is really just that everyone reads this book and know like what happened during that time. Well, I think history does repeat itself. And I think if people are armed with the knowledge of what's happened before, then they're hopefully able to make better decisions. When something like this comes around again, there'll be more people saying, no, thank you. Like, we need to not do this. It's totally not okay. That's right. I hope so. I hope so too. Well, what about the format? I think that was one of the things that I really, really loved about the story. 
starting out in 2016 and then toggling back and forth between 1973 and 2016. How did you decide to do that? And did you do that from the very beginning? That's a really good question. That's a, that's a writerly question. I love writerly questions. That one, it always had an older voice in it. It didn't necessarily, I had not pulled it out into 2016, but the manuscript always had a reflective narrator, a two-headed narrator. And every now and then, uh, you know, I had early readers. My readers would say, I really like those moments where the contemporary narrator rears her head and, and reveals her wisdom. Do that more often. And so I went through the manuscript trying to figure out like what were the opportune moments to do that. But then one day I woke up and I wrote the first chapter, which was her telling her daughter that it's time for me to tell you this story now that you are the age that I was then. And that was when I realized that it wasn't just going to be a sort of subtle rearing of the, the, the dual headed narrator. It was actually going to be a dual timeline novel. And then I began to write these little mini interludes. Of course, once it got in the hands of my editor, Amanda Bergeron, she was so helpful and wonderful. We then had to figure out where those chapters needed to occur. And we moved them around a lot just to make sure that it occurred at these sort of natural pauses in the, in the historical narrative. I hadn't thought about that aspect of it, but I will tell you, it just grabbed me from the beginning. I love that she was telling the story to her daughter. As you said, when her daughter was the age that Sybil had been originally when everything happened, I just thought it worked really, really well for this story. I was really happy with the way that it turned out. You know, um, it's my first time writing a dual timeline. So, yeah. Well, what about Sybil's name? I thought a lot about that. I actually listened to the book and I thought a lot about that as I was listening because it's really the perfect name for her. How did you decide on Sybil? I always liked that name. One of my good friends who I grew up with, her sister was named Sybil. And her mother was a local activist in Bolivar, Tennessee. I don't know if they're listening right now, but I liked her name. And I, when I began to write this book, I began to think of it as a civil rights, post-civil rights moment. And I thought, this is the moment for me to use that name Sybil that I always liked. She's born in 1951. Her parents really want her to embody the future. They are hopeful of the future. The term civil rights and, you know, civil disobedience and all of those phrases were already in use at that time. And they wanted her to, to be the future. And so it's really important that that act of naming her is a sort of aspirational quality that she tries to live up to. She wants to do right. She wants to be a step further in the struggle. But she learns very quickly that it's difficult when you have this array of forces that are oppressing people. It's just very difficult to make a difference. But it's the perfect name for her. That I can't think of a character that's better named in fiction. Oh, well, thank you. I'll say this. When we discussed, we were discussing titles because we didn't have a title for a while. And we were talking about it with my UK publisher. We thought about putting civil in the title. And she said, well, in the UK, they think of the word civil as sort of polite, as a word that means to be civil, like civility. And so it might not work in, as a title in that area. But as I listen to her, I sort of like that idea too, the notion, you know, which is, of course, tied to civil rights, right? Being respectful, of course. 
But um, I definitely like that idea of, you know, this is someone who holds herself in a certain way, um, in a sort of dignified way. And it is really, and you know, and it really also ties in with that beautiful picture on the cover, which I think also really represents her name well. Well, that is the reason I liked her name, because I think it means several things. And I think she embodies all of that. And so I just felt like it really worked so well. Thank you. Now let's talk about that beautiful cover, because I am always about the covers. And I'll tell you, when I first saw the cover, I thought, okay, I must read this book. It is absolutely stunning. You must just love it. I did love it. And when they showed it to me, they never showed me any other cover. I mean, there were little small, you know, adjustments that we made. But that was the first that was the first cover they showed me. Actually, they showed me another cover. That's not true. They showed me another cover. But this was the first one that they showed me. And I just loved it. I thought it was majestic. I love the flowers. I love how the flowers and the sky and the sun set in the background look sort of rural and, you know, that beautiful Alabama sky. And so, you know, I love the blue nurse's uniform she's wearing. I just thought it was perfect. And I, I was really in love with it. It is perfect. And I love the way the title is large across the whole entire cover. So it stands out. So it's wonderful if you're seeing it in a little digital widget or if you're seeing it large on the book. I just think all the way around, it's a really great cover. Yes, Berkeley Books did a great job. They usually really do a good job on covers, I think. Well, what was the hardest part about writing this book? You know, the hardest part was that, first of all, it took me so long. I wish I could write faster. I felt <laughs> I didn't know if I would ever finish it. And so that that was one part that was difficult. The other thing that was difficult was really capturing all of the different issues. I mean, there's so many issues in the book from disability to class to racism to there's just so many different issues that I had to tackle in order to tell the story, not because I wanted to, but because in the real court case, there were all of those issues present. So I think, you know, it was very challenging. I also never found the actual court transcript of what happened in court. So I had to make all of that up, those court proceedings. And I don't know anything about the law. I don't have a law degree. And I asked my girlfriend, who's a lawyer, for help. And she said, well, just watch Law and Order or you'll be fine. And then I, uh, I asked my husband and he gave me the uh, rules of civil procedure. Well, of course, that's all Greek to me. So I really floundered. And I, you know, I, I know any mistakes in there are mine, but I hope I, I did OK on that. Well, that would be very hard without the actual transcripts. I wonder where they've gone. Well, they weren't digitized at the time. So right, I, right. Uh, so they began to be digitized uh, a few years after that. It would be a lot easier if they were digitized. I did find out who the court reporter company was, but I was never able to find their records. So who knows? They may be out there somewhere. I went to the National Archives here in D.C. because the actual case was actually argued in a federal court in Washington, D.C., but I was never able to. I looked everywhere. I couldn't find them. And, you know, it's so hard to imagine that in our day and age in terms of being able to find things. Everything is online and everything is digitized. So it's hard when you go back in time like that and things haven't been 
completely transcribed online somewhere yet. And same with trying to find those nurses. Like that's so hard to imagine these days. But the fact that you couldn't find any of them, that the records weren't good enough. Right. And I'm so close because things begin to be things begin to be digitized in the 80s. Right. Right. Like people begin scanning things, et cetera. But, you know, I felt like I was so close yet so far. (laughs) If I had been in the 1800s, you know, it would have been easy to say, okay, well, there aren't court proceedings. The only thing I have is this. But but in 1973, it's very frustrating because I I always suspected that somewhere in some dusty basement that transcript exists. It will show up at some point and you'll be like, I knew it. Hopefully from a reader. Sometimes readers will email me with things, which is always nice. Oh, that's true. I hadn't even thought about it from that perspective. Somebody who knows more about it or knows about the case and worked on it or something and is like, here you go. That's right. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Well, I'm real excited about The Lioness by Chris Bojalian, which comes out May 10th. I have an early copy of that. There's another book coming out called Miss Chloe, which is a memoir by the writer A.J. Verdell about her friendship with Toni Morrison. It's beautifully written, and it shows us another side of Toni Morrison as a girlfriend, which I just love. Oh, yeah. I recently read uh, The Magnolia Palace by Fiona Davis. Oh, and I'll give a shout out to some books that are coming out today. My good friend Dalma Llanos Figueroa, uh, a Puerto Rican writer, uh, wrote a book called The Woman of Endurance, A Woman of Endurance. And her book comes out today. And The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare by Kimberly Brock comes out today. And The Devil's Half Acre by Kristen Green comes out today. I have a great pub day with some good historical fiction writers. So I want to encourage everyone to support historical fiction because it really is a lot of fun and hopefully uh, we'll have a nice long reading summer. It's a huge pub day. I was kind of surprised when all of a sudden I started seeing everybody's posts and I was like, there are so many books coming out today. It is. I mean, we had some big ones last week on April 5th too, but I think April's a good reading month and I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Well, Dolan, this was delightful. I just can't tell you how much I loved your book and I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. So thank you for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you, Cindy. Chronic migraine is 15 or more headache days a month, each lasting four hours or more. Botox, onabotulinum toxin A, prevents headaches in adults with chronic migraine. It's not for adults with migraine with 14 or fewer headache days a month. It prevents, on average, 8 to 9 headache days a month versus 6 to 7 for placebo. Prescription Botox is injected by your doctor. Effects of Botox may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness can be signs of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Side effects may include allergic reactions, neck and injection site pain, fatigue, and headache. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Don't receive Botox if there's a skin infection. Tell your doctor your medical history, muscle or nerve conditions, including ALS Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. Ask your doctor and visit BotoxChronicMigraine.com or call 1-800-44-BOTOX to learn more. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. 
Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.